Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reservations. We're your host. I'm Rain Whalen. And I'm... Oh, no. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh, man. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say, uh, my name is Lucifer Morningstar. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. He... Raina just informed me that Lucifer's last name on the show Lucifer is Morningstar, and I said, you know, that that would be like a gay porn star's name. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I wanted to introduce myself that way. As I, and as I told Jeremy, I think it was DC's way of uh, uh, keeping parents from being like, oh, it's it's satanic, and I don't know. Maybe, but Maybe. I, I think that was a poor choice. But that's just my personal opinion. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, before we get into the episode, I just, I really, I gotta flex nuts, man. Um, because our new best friend, uh, shout out Emily Eaton, hooked me, Jeremy, and our buddy Alex, which is her boyfriend, up with tickets to Tenet. Bro, I'm I'm so excited for this movie. Yeah. And I'm so happy that she did that for us. Yes, I I've never been this happy. Um, Not even when your dad told you he was proud of you. He's that never one said time. That. No, he's never said that. So that, uh, that one time when you came out of the womb, you don't remember <laughs> that? Yeah, no, he didn't say it then either. So um, I I'm excited to see what Nolan's got in store this time. Yeah, man. Um, As you know, I I rewatch trailers constantly, but when I saw this. I really was like, okay, this is something special. I only saw the teaser. I only like the one, the first, the really first one. Yeah, the very, very first mm-hmm. one. The one I haven't one. seen anything and else. And I, yeah, I didn't either because I, I did the same thing for Interstellar. I did the same thing for Dunkirk. I, I, I did the same thing for all, not just Nolan movies, but other movies as well. But, but yeah, I, I, but especially his movies because, because studios tend to have them overshare. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, studios overshare in trailers, um, which brings me to the first time I remember to do this in, in the start of the podcast, which is if you not have not seen American Psycho, please turn this off, watch it, then come back because this is spoilers galore. By the yes. way, for this episode, I should we start doing that now? From now I on? think we should because, especially <laughs> for movies like this, because this uh, this film is. It relies on you sort of playing on your expectations of mm. this traditional narrative, right? Right. And, of course, it's not going to go that way. So right. if you have not seen American Psycho, turn this off, go watch it, come back, and we'll we'll fill you in on what you just saw. Because, yes. again, this is, this is not a movie you want to spoil for yourself. Absolutely. Uh, so, again... Shout out to Emily. Yes, shout Thank out to you Emily. So much. Oh, it's amazing. I, I can't believe it. Yes. Right. She's the best. Yes. So, and as Jeremy said, this week's episode is American Psycho. Um, I remember the first time I ever saw this movie, it really left me like, kind of like, like what? What did it just happen? I was I was too young. Um, Same. I, I was like I don't know, fourteen. I would say I was probably about. I, I know uh, we were out of high school by the time I. Oh, you were out of high school. Oh, okay, no, I was. I was I, like so 13, I had been eighteen, nineteen by the time I finally saw it, and uh, I saw it, and I just didn't get it right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoyed. Uh, 
the ride, but I didn't get the full scope of what it was. Right? Yeah, I think, I think def. I mean, like you know, most people say like, oh, you'll get it when you're older. But I think something like this, you re- like now I get it. Now I'm like, huh? Yeah, see, I, I get it now. But yeah, but dude, I will say though, even though I didn't get it the first time I saw it, uh, it stuck with me, mm-hmm. um, and that's something really cool that this film does is that it does stick with you yes like yes regardless if you if you got it or if you didn't right it's it's gonna confuse you the first time i think only because you know it it pulls the rug out from under you and then you're stuck with you know asking yourself all right then you have to sort of lay it out because you have to go all right he did this but then it it's sort of it doubled back and said, well, maybe he didn't do this. And then that person is alive now. And, you know, this apartment is now unfurnished and yeah. for sale. And but we just saw it. And, you yeah. know, where, where in the world is Paul Allen? Right. Now. So it's, <laughs> it, it's title of the episode. Where's Paul Allen? Where in the world is Paul Allen? Um, because I mean, again, it, it plays on your expectations mm. of how a narrative should go. Yes, but it also plays with the tone, right? There's oh, a yeah. lot of tonal shifts. Uh, we'll get into the horrible, evil, nasty, terrible MPAA here in a, a little while. Yes, but one of their complaints was the tone. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. And Mary Heron's like, "Well, I can't do anything about that." So, That's how the book was. Yeah, and it's like I can't go back and edit the tone. So, like, give me something I can do, right? Yeah, uh, and the also, good. And also, uh, we'll get into it later. But like, all the theories that came out of the movie, like, like, like people reading way too much into it, mm-hmm. and I really want to talk about that. But sweet, we'll get to that. So let's talk about again. I've I've gotten I've gotten a little bit of positive feedback about the not doing the synopsis. synopsis. Yeah, which again, from the person who only gives me feedback, if you guys would give me feedback, I would listen to you too. So um, the person who gives me feedback is his mom. No, it, it's my boy Zach. So uh, <laughs> Zach, buddy, uh, thank you for the feedback. I always appreciate it. And uh, if you dildos would actually <laughs> write a comment, give me some feedback. I would listen to you. Maybe you guys like the synopses. I don't know. Um, yeah. Again, uh, we'll get into it. But like we mentioned uh, last week, you know, on the on the on the website, on the Facebook page, just leave us a comment what you thought of the episode. You know, I know. I think on um, Anchor where we have the podcast now, you can leave comments and stuff like that. Oh, that's fun. So, like, let us know. And, when you know, Jeremy and I both monitor the Facebook and will comment. So, let us know. Uh, so, get out of you jerks. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, what, what we can talk about at first um, is... Who our character is. Well, yeah, and also sort of what he represents. The The reason why this, this film and the book is called American Psycho, right? Mm-hmm. The the idea of slapping the the country of origin to the title 
is very significant because of the criticism and overall sort of, you know, um, I wouldn't say it's over the top because it isn't over the top, not in this case, uh, of the excess the greed, mm. the the materialistic yeah. uh, time that was the 1980s, right? Yeah. Especially for rich white men that they called yuppies at the time. Um, I always wondered what I'm that... I'm going to use that word a lot today. I, I always wondered what that term meant. Yuppie is just a... a it's not technically derogatory, but um, it's just a term for a rich, snobby, um, well-dressed, uh, very materialistic man like mostly normally white like our uh, protagonist uh, patrick batman patrick batman um <laughs> which is <laughs> which is which is what i call jason batman jason uh, batman yeah jason batman um so and this is actually i mean good job because that's a that's a decent reference to his uh what will later become his career but um yeah patrick bateman it's Bateman, everyone. Is not. this, you know, stereotypical yuppie, yeah. right? And the reason why that's so important and a... a I, I mean, it's, it's a feature in the narrative is mistaken identity, mm-hmm. right? He's always being uh, mistaken for somebody else, right? Yep. And we get a little bit of that when he explains... Haversham, why he keeps getting mistaken for him because they wear the same glasses, they get the same haircut. They wear the same suits. Right. And so... The only difference is his haircut is better. Right. <laughs> exactly. And so let's talk a little bit about the criticism of the 1980s in this yes. movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, number one is, of course, the materialism. Right. Mm-hmm. The constant name dropping of um, uh, of fashion labels and you know how much their apartment costs where it is mm-hmm. right that matters oh yeah what they have in the apartment what floor they're on right mm-hmm. all of that matters to these yuppies yeah right um, Rain would you like to shed some light on that as well on uh, or just what you noticed about the materialism and oh, the, yeah, the sort of criticism um, on that in the uh, oh yeah you know like what you know what kind of you know like um, you threw me off sorry, sorry. no uh, like you know like in the opening scenes like their skin routine mm-hmm. especially Patrick's like all these very high end skin routines and you know um if they're eating at the finest restaurants, uh, especially... Oh, we'll get to the restaurants. Dorzia, you know, and... <laughs> we'll get there. And then, of course, the most superficial and most uh, materialistic scene in the whole movie, their cards. Down to their cards. How their, how business, their cards. business cards look yeah. means everything to these guys. And, of course, to the casual observer, they're the exact same. Yeah. Right? There really is no difference between... All of them. Mm-hmm. And, of course, a little fun thing, if you notice, that they, they all say vice president. Yeah. Like, they're all the same job title. The only thing that's different is the name. That's the only difference. Mm-hmm. You know, everything else is the same. I think that was kind of, you know, the point to drive home is these dudes are all the same. They're all interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Um, we happen to be following a mentally unstable one, but uh, apart from that, they're the same, yeah. which is why they keep getting mistaken for one another. Yeah. And and why Paul Allen insists that he is Haversham <laughs> instead of Patrick Bateman. Going as far as I think that's how you pronounce his last name, or how how I, you're you're great. We're gonna keep going with that. Yeah, Haversham. And um, and how he would go as far as talking shit about Patrick Bateman to Patrick Bateman, thinking he's not Patrick Bateman, right? Which happens twice. Yes, yeah. it does. Um, and of course, leads up to the retaliation. Yeah. Um, the restaurants is is particularly sort of eye rolling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just the I, I love the names of the the foods, right? Yeah. The, what is it? The the peanut butter soup and duck. Squ- it was gross. It like, sounds, oh, in the opening scene, it sounds disgusting, right? Yeah. And the only one I really caught was like the lemon rabbit something. I mean, other. I mean, obviously, if you pay attention to stuff like that, it's just like ugh. You know, but of yeah. course, it's, it, it's high quality. They don't care what it is. The fact is, it's expensive, it's exclusive, and you know, it's high society. Yeah, you know, especially in that opening scene when uh, Patrick and his boys, you know, are, are eating and they get the bill, and I think it's Justin Thoreau's character, Bryce. So it's like, oh, only five hundred seventy dollars. <laughs> And, you know, this is the first time Ash- I watched it with Ashley. And it's the first time she'd ever seen it. And she was like, yeah, only. But see, that's the joke. Right? Yeah. That's the point. And they all pull out their Amex cards. Right. And they're all the same. Yeah. Right. Um, now, this can bring up, now that you mentioned the boys. The boys. Uh, this brings the the sort of subtle, not or sometimes not very subtle, tone of homoeroticism that sort of underlines every scene these guys are in. Mm-hmm. Right, because they're not—they're not homosexual, right? No. Except for one, but we'll get there. Oh yeah, um, his character's fantastic, Lewis. Um, they're not, but again, because of the stereotypical stuff that we think about, especially in the 1980s, is caring about your personal appearance, caring about what you're wearing, caring about you know what you drive, where you live, how mm-hmm. it looks. The decor, the your skin routine, your whatever. Yeah, you know, I was watching a video uh, from Screen Rant. Uh, I'll send it to you. I think you would really enjoy it. Uh, where they talk about like what Mary Heron thought of the movie, <laughs> the director, and she really was like, "It's a uh, a take on pretty much dumb male masculinity." Is yeah. what it is. And uh, which is funny because she did get a lot of criticism for the movie being uh, misogynistic mm-hmm. and anti-feminist. And she goes, two women made the movie. What are you talking about? Yeah. Right. Uh, I forgot the woman's name who she co-wrote the, the film with. Mm-hmm. But it's like that's the opposite. Yeah. Both of them right? say that this is a very pro-feminist. The author is movie. gay. He's not right. Uh, Brady Stanellis. Yeah. Right. Uh, we'll get into Brady Snell's here in a little bit. Uh, he also has a podcast, and it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Not to, not to plug it. I'll plug anyone's stuff. You <laughs> just let me know. You let me know, I'll plug it. Um, uh, also, uh, Enter the Void did an episode of this, uh, so go and uh, listen to their take on American Psycho after you're done with us. Anyway. Um, so the the subtle homoeroticism was very interesting, of course. Uh, Brady Sinellis being homosexual really kind of, you know, put that in because that's that's what he saw, 
right? Mm-hmm. When he would think about men yuppies, right? Yeah. In the 1980s, is the sort of weird um, homoerotic things they would do, even though they were heterosexual, right? Right. What we would probably later call metrosexual, right? Right. Um, and and so he he brought a lot of that into it as well, which again. Uh, it gives a certain tone to every scene that these guys are in that is sort of, I wouldn't say it's uncomfortable, but no. it, it does, you know, give an extra layer of of tone, I guess. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely, definitely would say almost humor yeah. to, to these guys because, you know. Well, and they're ridiculous caricatures. Oh, yeah. Right? Especially um, Justin Thoreau and... Um, <laughs> Justin Thoreau, I would pick, is the most out there. Oh, yeah, Is Bryce. the most over the top. Well, and... Especially in his dancing. It finally took me, this time watching it, that he's wearing color contacts. Mm. I never noticed it the first, the few times I've seen the movie. But he's wearing color contacts. Because it really, it really brings, like, almost, like, fierceness to his character. Mm-hmm. Even though Bryce is probably the dumbest of the group. Yeah, and he also, you know, he's very sharp features his chin and his nose mm-hmm. and so when he slicks his hair all the way back he, he looks like a villain he does he looks like a stereotypical cartoon villain he looks like fucking damn backslide <laughs> yeah exactly he does right and so that sort of um brings a, a weird energy to his character mm-hmm. also and then you got just uh josh i can't think of his name josh Oh, um, now that you asked me, I'm not going to know. Hang on. I got I got he, this guy. Uh, he was in Second in Lines. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was the older Haley Joe Osment. That's right. He, he uh, Josh... Lucas. Yes, Josh Lucas. I, I love Josh Lucas. Yeah, he's great in this. I mean, everybody's great in this. Um, yeah. Especially Christian Bale. Yes. Uh, but Josh Lucas, his character is a little more over the top in his heterosexual masculinity. Absolutely. Right? Um, especially when he's talking about uh, women, uh, women can't be smart, or when, when they're at women the, can't be smart when they're at the cigar club, right? Yeah, uh, and there's this, of course, when we get Lewis's um, run-in uh, with Patrick in the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, but of course, Lewis is a very interesting character because he embodies everything they do with the added, um, the added thing thing is a terrible word uh, of being homosexual right right sort of closeted homosexual yeah. oh, again yeah. in the 1980s this is you know a big deal because of the AIDS epidemic mm-hmm. and homosexuality was you know feared and being persecuted and whatever um, they there are a lot of conversations that these characters have about AIDS in the book but not in the movie there's there's one. Oh yeah, you're right. There's when one. when they're <laughs> waiting in line to go to the coke stall. Yep. And and Bryce is like, yeah man, once you contract it, you can get all the other diseases, dyslexia. <laughs> and Patrick's, I don't think I don't think dyslexia is a disease. Patrick does seem to be the smartest out of everybody. He seems to have, which is strange that he has the most, uh, the most competence about him. Yeah. Uh, than everybody else. He seems to be more socially and personally aware, right? He has more self-awareness than anybody else. Well, and I think it, I think it goes to the idea that he, he needs them to know he's better. Right. 
right. by knowing more, you know, especially in the scene where he is explaining how, you know, how we really solve the world. You know, and he goes. That's right, and it's almost like that Robert Smith uh, lookalike, and the right the <laughs> it's sitting at the same. I don't even know how they're sitting at the same. Uh, is it one like of them is Reese Witherspoon's character's uh, cousin? Oh, okay, gotcha. Thank you. Uh, I think it's the guy, but you know, he's giving a, a lot of valid points of how they can fix the world, mm-hmm. but he's just saying it to be like, I'm one upping you. He's regurgitating, yeah. right? Um, and this brings up. Uh, th- this is flowing very well, by the way. Uh, I hate to call it out, but it is. Uh, because this brings up how they plant ideas for the audience of how Patrick learns behavior. Because mm. Patrick is a psychopath. Mm-hmm. And and would you go as far as say he's also a sociopath? I would say that there are sociopathic tendencies with his... With psychopathic miss because you know he he has no empathy which is also um, you know a, a symptom of being a psychopath um, but he also doesn't just know how to how to act he doesn't know how to be a human right which right. is what we get with this opening uh, of his monologue routine right that he's not a human right uh, he he may have the characteristics but he isn't one and so we always see him watching videos right yeah and this is how he learns to murder. This is how he learns to have sex. This is how he learns to speak. This is how he learns everything. Mm. So it's through television. Yeah. Um, again, television being extremely popular in the 1980s, like it was the year before, the decade before that, and the decade before that. Um, this is how he learns behaviors. This is how he learns how to be a human. Right. right? And of course, as we know from watching these things these things are heightened a little bit mm-hmm. and so so is he when he does these things very heightened and so uh when he's do when he murders paul allen it's very over the top very campy and very almost cartoony right because he's learning these things through television yeah and probably one of the most maybe not one of the most but one of the more memorable scenes of that movie is him killing paul allen right because he's very animated, having this very big, elongated discussion of Huey Lewis in the news. In the book, there are chapters of, uh, of Patrick just, Bateman talking about music. Really? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, so they're almost like um, music theory interludes in that, the book. That's awesome. Where he just talks about... I mean, obviously, the music in the book couldn't be in the movie because they're different you know right intellectual properties and stuff like that yeah but I, I just love how he's like <laughs> my favorite is when he's leaning up against it but this one <laughs> no one can see me doing that right but he does the finger gun and he swings his arm he around swings his arm, but this one right it's just and poor Jared Leto is just blasted out of his mind Jared Leto's amazing um, always, I, I think. I, I think he's great. And the thing about Jared Leto is he's never aged a day in his life. Uh-uh. And so, he really is Morbius the Living Vampire. He is. <laughs> so when Jared Leto, this is 20 years ago, Jared Leto, mm-hmm. right? Hadn't started 30 Seconds to Mars yet. No. But he you know, he had been an actor in, I think, my so-called life before this. Well, he was an 80s baby, wasn't he? Like he was, no, he was born in 1975. Well, no, so what I mean is he was really took off. Acting wise, right. in the so, 80s. Right, right. so he, you know, obviously he's a good actor to choose because he's cognizant of these sort of stereotypical uh, ideas and tropes of the 1980s, right? Mm-hmm. Of the scope. 
So yeah, you would be correct. Um, but <laughs> it's just so funny to see him there because you see him in something that he may have he may have filmed a day ago and he looks exactly the same, yeah. right? Even though that was 20 years ago. No. Uh, it's amazing. And so anytime you see Jared Leto in anything, it's like, did he just do that? You know? Yeah. It's amazing. And that's a little... Later in 2049. About Jared Leto just not aging. I'm telling you, man, that's why I think I think he went to Sony and he was like, hey, I really am Morbius the Right, vampire. I really am a vampire, uh, so if you want to... Make a movie about that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Ashley was like, is that Jared Leto? I was like, yeah, that's Jared Leto. And she was like, is this before? I was like, no, he was an actor first. And then he was like, you know, I want to try my hand at music. Right. And then that's when the the very pretentious Jared Leto came out mm-hmm. is after he started his music career. Yeah. Wearing fully Gucci tracksuit. Yeah, but that's super rad. So, <laughs> But can you afford it? No. Um, so you just live vicariously through Jared Leto? I kind of do. I'm, I'm thinking about joining his cult. So, um, so anyway, so Jared Leto is Paul Allen, right? right? And of course, they've had run-ins, you know, like we've said, of him mistaking him for another person at this company. Mm-hmm. And it is insinuated, by the way, that Patrick Bateman's father owns the company. Owns the company, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and we'll get to the actual thing that they do for a living, which is absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, every time uh, Patrick is alone in his office, he's doing nothing. He's doing nothing. There's nothing on his desk. Uh, he's he just watches television or he listens to music um, until his assistant Chloe Sevigny, uh, until she walks in. Then he's got to, you know, act like he's doing something or whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, we never see these men do any work, right? Yeah. Uh, which they... is, again, sort of this idea of uh, greed and materialism, but for little to no work, right? They, and they, they just make bank. Right. They're, they're, they're this successful for doing nothing. Yeah. Right? Which is kind of what it looks like from the outside looking in when you look at these... CEOs and bankers and whatever. Um, yeah, because you know the first time we see Patrick in the office, he, you know, kind of doesn't really make fun of Chloe's. Oh, he's very matter of fact. But he's, he's like, from now on, wear a dress. Don't wear that anymore. Right. And I like heels. But as soon as she walks out, he just puts his feet up on the desk and turns on the TV. Right. <laughs> and we I'm never like, see these people do any, any yeah. work. And I cannot wait. We'll get there to okay. talk about Willem Dafoe. But we'll we'll get to Willem Dafoe here in just a second because he's my favorite person of all time. So, yeah. um, and you know, just kind of to lead into that, um, you know, I used to think that they underused him, but now that I'm older, I'm like, no, they used perfect amount of Willem Dafoe. They did because uh, his character is extremely interesting and done in such a way Mary Heron's a genius for doing this yeah again we'll get there because I want to get to Paul Allen first okay Paul Allen so the murder where of is Paul, Paul Allen where in the world is Paul Allen um the murder of Paul Allen is really interesting because it's the one thing Brett Easton Ellis hates really? is the moonwalk um when Patrick is putting on the the raincoat and grabbing the axe. axe and he moonwalks to the other side of the couch it's too over the top for Brady Snellis's point of view oh, okay. he seems to think that that's just too silly right and he didn't like that I, 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 I understand right because if I were the author and they added a sort of 
a tone or quirk or a little, you know, they cranked it a little too high on the campiness, right? Mm. I, I wouldn't like that either. But uh, to me, I, I think it kind of works because um, he's so animated talking about music anyway that it just builds. See, you know, I always considered he did it, I mean, he to hide the axe well, from it was, him. It was improvised. Um, so was the dancing, by the way, the sort of hip shake. The, oh, the. Yeah, the very animated and over-the-top hip shake. Which, again, this whole thing is, right? right? And most of the murders are really over the top, mm. which plays into the ending. And, again, we'll get to that. But the the murders in the book are described in great graphic detail. Okay. All right? So the difference between that and the movie is we barely see them, right? Mm-hmm. He... When he swings the axe down, which is a chrome-headed axe, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and doesn't look sharp at all. No. Um, you know, the blood... Hits his face. Right. And as, an, as a happy accident, one side of his face. Mm-hmm. So we get that sort of dual, um, two-faced, you know, Patrick Bateman, the cool, calm-collected yuppie, and the terrifying murderer. Right? right. So, again, accident, but that's how it played and it just played perfectly for the narrative mm-hmm. um, you know we kind of get a little bit of the body but not really again we see no we see blood but no gore there's no right right so so like a horror movie when we see the axe come down we're gonna see it hit the head mm-hmm. eyeballs may pop out you know and then the axe is gonna come out and again this is this is sort of low budget right yeah. so I mean there's not a whole I mean they didn't have Tom Savini you know, working on... Uh, 80, 80 blood squibs. Right. And, and you 100 know, gallons of blood. And, and you know, like, uh, the, the prosthetics. And, it, you know, they don't have Tom Savini back there. So it's, right. you know, it, it works. It does. It absolutely does. Right. Uh, and, of course, my favorite sort of surrealist moment is him dragging the overnight bag with presumably Paul Allen's body in it and the trail of blood. Ashley was like, is no one going to say anything? And they don't. The only thing anyone says is Lewis asking where he got it. Right. Again, playing on this materialistic, yuppie lifestyle Mm -hmm. where that's all they talk about. That clearly he's doing something suspicious, but yo, yo dog, where'd you get that bag? Right. And of course, this also plays with the the about to choke Lewis in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. He ignores it. Right? It's it's almost like it's not happening. Yeah. Right? Which, it's so interesting. And again, it plays with the ending. But um, I, I love the dragging of the suitcase. It's mm-hmm. great. Um, I believe when he turns around and goes back, you can't see it anymore, the, the blood trail. But I don't I don't remember if that's true or not. Um, I'd like to remember it that way, but it might uh, that might not be the case. Um, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I just remember they cut to the security guard, and he just kind of looks up and looks back down at his book. Right. And then Patrick's still just dragging, dragging it. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and again, it must be a great overnight bag. I know, dude. But it leaks, so it's not a great overnight bag. It's not that good. Okay. Finally, let's talk about Willem Dafoe. Because now um, we get this traditional narrative structure where now we're going to see if Patrick's going to get caught. Right. Right. We've seen him 
perform a murder. Let's and, see if he gets caught. And, you know, try to make it look like Paul just went away. Right. He, <laughs> the the worst Jared Leto impression of all time. Hey, oh, you're called away to London. Austin LaVista, baby. You know, that... <laughs> He didn't even change his voice that much, and it's so weird, and no one's ever going to believe it, right? But it works. Um, When Willem Dafoe shows up at his office, he's the detective on the case. Uh, He says, well, there was uh, a message, uh, the whatever message on his machine saying that, you know, he's going off to London. We do have someone who has seen him there. But we're just checking all of our boxes. And so when... It's happened enough now to where we think someone has mistaken someone in London for Paul, Paul Allen. Allen because people are being mistaken for each other in this place all the time. Right. Right? So maybe he's not. And so... So we are still under the impression Paul Allen's dead. And and Patrick got away with it. Right. So here's the genius of Mary Heron is she asks Willem Dafoe, I want you to do this three times. I want you to do it once where you absolutely know Patrick, Patrick is guilty. Mm-hmm. The second time, I want you to do it where you're not sure, but you're still looking into it. Third, he's absolutely innocent, and you're just doing it to humor uh, your bosses or whatever. Right. right. And so she would just intercut those in between takes. And so now we're getting this sort of strange combination of emotions and tone when Willem Dafoe is talking with Patrick. Mm-hmm. And this is every time Willem Dafoe is in a scene, she does this. And it's... I tried to look out for it in this rewatch, but I, I was like, I still can't figure out which it's one's... It's tough, it's subtle. I know, I know there's one, especially, that I was like, oh, that's one of the takes where he's like, really, you think that? Because he know, like, he's like, oh, you know. I think, you know, because it's not... There are some that are obvious takes to where he doesn't um, he doesn't think that he had anything to do with it. Where mm-hmm. when they start talking about music or whatever, mm-hmm. um, talking about CDs, right? He goes, oh, "Just pick this up," you know, you know. Yeah. And you know, the, you get the line of like, "I'm not really into music," as <laughs> you know, whatever. And so that's sort of that's one of those takes where it's like, "Oh, he's not worried about Patrick," right? Yeah. Um, but again, it, it gives this weird tone in the film where we keep switching back and forth with Willem Dafoe. Mm. And it gives a really interesting tone to the whole film in general, just for this ambiguity. Right. Which again, plays into the end where we just don't know what to believe anymore. Right? Right. I love Willem Dafoe in this. I love Willem Dafoe in anything. Yes. Willem Dafoe keeps saying yes. Yeah. (laughs) Keep saying yes. If someone asks you to do a movie, keep saying yes because I love it. Yes. Um, because Willem Dafoe never says no, and that's what I love about it. Just, just Willem, never don't pull a Patrick Stewart and agree to play the poop emoji. And Willem Dafoe would have crushed that. Okay, but would it have saved the movie? I don't know. I didn't see it, but exactly. Because the movie, I, I think Willem Dafoe would have been great at that. Um, if they had made it look more like Willem Dafoe, <laughs> giving him like, the nose and, and the chin and the teeth, yeah, I think it would have been great. <laughs> Uh, but again, um, shout out to my dad. We we love Willem. I mean, we we always talk about how Willem Dafoe will just do anything, and um, and crush it. 
Oh yeah, and absolutely kill. And so it's fun to see him in all these different things, like Boondock Sites, right? Or <sighs> exactly, I knew you'd like that one. Uh, or Antichrist, or you know, even um, the Florida Project uh, recently. Uh, he's amazing and everything. Yeah, and do. so this is no exception. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's fun to see people in this film that have gone on to do a whole bunch of stuff like Chloe Sevigny. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, the first time I ever saw her in anything was American Horror Story. Uh, oh, that's right, because you hadn't hotel. seen... Right, right, right. Um, this is probably the first thing I ever saw her in, just because, you know. Yeah. Um, I was so young when I saw it. 13 or something. You know, I want to know what people thought... <laughs> This is kind of just a side side thought. You know, seeing Newsies and then seeing this movie, they're like, you know, people are like, yo, that kid from Newsies isn't this. And they're like, yo, that kid from Newsies, dog? Now, this brings up a really interesting point. Let's take a break from the other stuff for now, um, and let's talk about casting. So, um, Christian Bale's not the first choice. I thought he was, but they still needed to shop around. They really wanted Leo DiCaprio, Ooh. and he was interested. Uh, Mary Heron talks about this a lot, uh, that he was really interested, but his manager... Was like, no. Well, only because he had just done Titanic. Oh, shit, that's right. And he's like, your fans are going to hate it, you know, because they're all these teenage girls, mm. right? Damn you, James Cameron. And I, yeah, I, if you need another reason to hate James Cameron, it's this. So, not that you need another reason. God, I hate James Cameron. So, there, and so when, when they were talking about it, you know, it was, you know, Leo was really interested and he really wanted to do it. And do you think this would have finally gotten him his Oscar? Early? I, I think it would have gotten it sooner because, again, I think he would have been great at it. This, you know, and it would have played a little bit more with sort of that wolf in sheep's clothing because. He would just he just played a good guy. Well, and I think that he looks a lot less menacing than than Christian Bale. Yeah, Christian. I mean, if, again, Christian is fantastic, and you know now that we're saying I it, agree. I don't think anyone but Christian could have done this. Right. But he does have more of a very menacing look when he switches. Right, and so this, uh, so if DiCaprio would have done it. I think it would have been really interesting to see that because it would have been almost like this kid, right? I think, you know, I think we kind of got a little bit of that in Django. Yeah. Because Mishra Kandi is very like, oh, haha. Right. Until he, until he's not. Exactly. And, and so then he's very that's terrifying. A, that's a good point. Especially and when Leo cuts his hand on set right. and told Quentin to keep rolling. Shout out to our first episode. Yeah. Quentin Tarantino uh, was one bad motherfucker. Yeah. Uh, shout out to our first episode. Um, <laughs> so I think that would have been really interesting. Yeah. But when she met Christian Bale, and I know we've, we've personally talked about this a bunch because I think it's a fun story. Uh, she met Christian. He was just this scrawny English kid. Uh, he had done Empire of the Sun. He had done Newsies. Not a whole bunch since then, right? He So he was she remembered him from Empire of the Sun That's he was closer to Patrick's age around this time right? yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. I mean he's the right age Um, but you know he's just you know scrawny little English kid and and she goes by the way Patrick in the book goes to the gym so you might want to hit the gym every once in a while so you can get some muscle on you and And Christian was like okay I got you and he goes back looking like this and she goes I said 
a little bit. Go to the gym a little bit, you know. And as we know now from Christian Bale, he doesn't do a little bit. No, he's he's either all in or he doesn't really care. Or he doesn't do it at all, right? Which, of course, now he's said that he has to be much more safer. Yeah, he's got to be careful now. About, he's older about doing his weight loss and weight gain for his method acting. Yeah, because, I mean, Jesus. Because he... Didn't he punched out for Vice, but they still had to use a fat suit, right? Yeah, he he did get uh, he did get a lot of weight for Vice, uh, but you're right, they did have to use some uh, fat suits um, to get the the really the older Dick Cheney was a lot more heavier, and so. Uh, but anyway, so um, so <laughs> uh, Christian comes back with a brand spanking new American accent. And this shredded physique. Yeah, which he definitely does for Batman. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. Bro. Which he crushes in Batman. He's he's bigger in Batman. Uh, yo, especially in Batman uh, The Dark Knight, bro. Dude, he's like... He could like probably rip an apple in half. With his bare hands. With his bare hands. Yeah, Christian... Uh, Leo wouldn't have done that. <laughs> I, I think that's the... That would have been one of the main differences besides acting style would have been the physical... Stuff that he would have done or not done. Well, and I think... Well, and, and, you know, and Leo, as we've mentioned before, is such a fantastic actor. I think that would have been the difference, though, is I think he would have only gone to the gym... A little bit. A little bit. He would have listened to Mary (laughs) Heron. He'd been like, I got you, dog. I got you. Comes back, oh, you know, a few days later and... With some muscle on Yeah. Right? Just Uh, a little bit of tonage, not like full... Maybe like he was in The Departed, right? I mean, not a whole lot... Um, but still muscular than he was before, right? Definitely. Um, even though he's very handsome, I think that the the physical muscly physique helps the Patrick Bateman character. I apologize, everyone. Wow, I thought I was, muted uh, my computer. That was loud. Um, anyway, I, I feel like the 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 musculature of Patrick Bateman helps a lot. I, I, I believe so, too. I Especially think it's, near the end when, you know, he's dropping chainsaws from, you know... Fucking the six-story building. Right, from from the top of a staircase. Uh, you Which, know, that's, it helps. that's not how physics work, but, you know, it works for... It works in the movie. Yeah. Um, but, obviously, but you're right. But, again, that plays... With the ending. End, right, because you're right. It wouldn't have worked. Well, and we get a little bit more of that later. Every murder becomes more and more over the top and surreal. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the very end. Um, when he goes on the... Trying to think, uh, the yeah, the, the... The killing spree. The killing spree. Um, to where he even feeds a cat to an ATM. Well, that's how it starts. Right. He, he's, he's at the ATM because he just broken up with Reese Witherspoon, which is... One of my favorite scenes, because it's very comedic. It is great. And I, I, it sort of, like, it, it's... Is that the one where he's drawing on the table? Yeah, box? he's drawing what he had just done. Right. And he, Christian delivers one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. He's like, I'm fucking serious, okay? It's fucking over us, all right? And he, because he's, he's just, he's tired of having to explain it. Right. You and, know? And Reese Witherspoon's character, Lydia? Evelyn. Evelyn. Evelyn doesn't listen to a word he says yeah. ever, and she's kind of dumb. She is kind of dumb, right? And she she never listens to anything he says. So when Patrick is saying something horrible, she plays it off 
because she's not listening. Yeah. Right? Um, this happens a lot with Patrick to where he will say something horrible and people just don't listen. Yeah, like with uh, when he's having dinner with Paul Allen, like uh, something about like I like to I like to dissect girls. Don't you know I'm no, utterly I'm... insane? And he's and he's just like average <laughs> <laughs> jam. And then, where'd you get that tan, man? And, and then when they're at the club, he's like, oh yeah, I'm in uh, murders and executions. Well, yeah, do you like it? Well, it depends. Yeah, I date a lot of guy in mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> right, exactly. It's this. So, but again, that's sort of surreal and ambiguous to where, what did he say? Right. Right? Is that what he's thinking, or is that literally what he's saying out loud? Right. Right? We, uh, you know. But anyway. Who knows? Uh, um, well, let's get to, let's get to the reason the NPA hates this movie the most, which is the three-way sex scene with uh, the prostitutes. Yes. Okay? Um, the Susu Studio scene. Um, yeah, because this is when he'd already, he'd killed Paul Allen. He'd killed Paul Allen. This is actually... Paul Allen's apartment? No. No, it's Not his yet. apartment. You're right. Um, I think this is when he was still kind of... But he does go as the alias Paul Allen. Paul Allen. Right. He's like, you're going to call me Paul Allen. Yeah. You're Christy. And you're Sabrina. Uh, but, you know, I think he was experimenting, really. He's also... Um, this is after he was watching pornography at, in his apartment, right? He's learning behaviors. Trying to... Uh, get reservations at Dorcia. Right. <laughs> While pornography is very loudly playing in the background. Yeah. And again, as we've established, this is how he learns behavior. And so now he's going to try it out. For real. With these uh, with these prostitutes. One of them, I forgot her name. She's the one he picks up first. Oh, uh, Christy. Christy, yeah. Uh, she is a wonderful actress and has been in a bunch of stuff. More recently, she was in... The Nick. Uh, oh, okay. She is uh, a nun. Uh, That's that one with Clive Owen, right? Yes. Uh, she works at the hospital as a, as a nun, and she's a nurse, hmm. uh, sort of. Um or a midwife. Maybe that's what they're. Uh, anyway, doesn't matter. She's fantastic, and um, she's she's an interesting choice in this one um, because of the way she plays her character. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean both. Both women are sort of unique and in the way that, you know, <laughs> they're pros, but they're not, they're, they're not acting as if they want to be there, right? They're not putting on airs. They're like, right. don't you want to know what I do? I'm like, no. No, not really. No, I don't want to know what you do. Well, right? and I think it was also kind of another experiment that he was doing. Takes a prostitute from the streets and then calls an escort girl, mm-hmm. you know. Right. I guess What's the to difference? see, yeah, right, and and then of course we get this very outlandish, very over the top sex scene, where um, number one he's filming it, number two he's looking at himself in the mirror the entire time, and that was Christian Bale's idea. Really? Yeah, um, he thought it would be funny, and Mary Heron loved it so much that she goes, "Can you do it the entire time?" And he goes, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> no yeah he's, he's flexing. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> he's flexing. You know, again, it's sort of. The mirrors are important because he's only learned this behavior by watching it, right? Mm. Obviously, doing it yourself is a little different, and so having the mirror there helps him, right? right. And and so he's like, how do I look? I look great. Look at me. Look at how good my abs look. Look at my muscles. Look at, look at my biceps, right? One of my favorite ones is when he's, like, winking at himself, pointing at the mirror. Yeah. It's, like, it's a great gift, by the way. So it's a good one to send people. If 
Uh, I send that one a lot. I, I found a meme of, of the one where he's got the girl's legs up in the air, uh-huh. and he's, like, like making this, like, grunting face. I found a really good meme, and I sent it. And it got a good response, but then I was like, yeah, but you know where that movie's from, right? And they're like, no. Oh. I'm like, okay, then we can't be friends anymore. Yeah, and so then you deleted the number. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, um, and of course, the MPAA didn't like that very much. Yeah, and as we just learned, in order to maintain their R rating, they had to trim 18 seconds off. Right, of that. And uh, I, this is years and years and years ago, um, after I'd already seen American Psycho, but um, I was getting really into documentaries. Mm-hmm. And there's this great documentary by Kirby Dick. It's called This Film Is Not Yet Rated. It talks about how awful the MPAA is. And uh, filmmakers talk about their... their experiences? Feelings, yeah, experiences with the MPAA. Wow. Mary Heron is one of them. And she said that when she was talking to the appeals board, because they'd given them an NC-17... Which, uh, if anyone doesn't know, that is one of the worst ratings and most film companies will not produce a film no you will not be able to release it in theaters no uh, under an nc-17 which means you can't get your money yep right and so it's really just saying um you won't make money off this movie like here's you know here's your rating sorry right and of course the documentary is about how they're biased and how they just do it to films that they don't like at certain times because mm-hmm. they'll let some things go but the same thing in another film that they won't like they'll slap an NC-17 on it wow. and at the time uh, in your appeals board you're not allowed to to cite other movies as examples no shit yeah so you can't say well they did it in this movie you're not allowed to do that well, at the time well you know in, in this movie they had a four way well okay well, you can't do that they wouldn't even let her they, they wouldn't... Wow. I'm not saying that she did, but if she had tried that... They would probably have They would have cut her off. Wow. But, uh, that's another movie where you can't do that. Right? That's... Man, what, you know, now I see why you, you hate the guy who... Uh, Jack Valenti. Yeah. Now I see why you really hate him. Yeah. Yeah, fuck that guy, bro. Yeah, he's off. Uh, <laughs> smiling up at us from hell right now. Um, Probably like, yeah, fuck you! So... Uh, the main source, and I, uh, we've probably already talked about it, is the, the tone. Yes. Right? Uh, and they really cited the, my favorite scene, your favorite scene, everyone's favorite scene, the business card scene. <laughs> they cited that one. And they're like, it's just the tone. It's just seen, it's so uncomfortable. And they're like, It's well, hilarious. And like, well, I can't, I can't edit tone. So how about, you know, you pick something I can take out for real, you know? That... I fucking love that scene. Yeah, I can't. So I can't cut tone out of the movie. So, you know, and they're like, "Well, we just don't like the tone." It's like, "Well, that's too bad." I don't know what to tell you. Well, so sorry. and it is hilarious, right? Again, it, it it's this over the top, uh, materialistic, <laughs> and and a great example of how wonderful Christian Bale is as an actor. And I was telling you this last night that he broke out into a sweat when he was handed Paul Allen's card at the exact same time every single take. Well, I mean, I mean, he's already pretty sweaty to begin with, but you can really see it when he's holding. And she didn't even ask him to do that. She goes, "Can you? You broke it. You did. Do you want to do it again?" He goes, "Yeah, hang on. <laughs> you know, hang on, hang on." And oh, every single time, the exact same time. And see, and and why I find that scene so funny is because, and you you said it earlier, is you know to to the everyday person like me or you, 
they're the same card. Right. And so, and they're talking about, yeah, it's got raised, red, you know, raised lettering. and That's called bone. It's called the color's bone. You know, eggshell. Like, it's, it's a, oh, it's a white card with lettering on it. Mm-hmm. You know? And, of course, my favorite thing is Christian Bale's voiceover, Christian Bale's voiceover, when he's holding Paul Allen's card. Because how he delivers, oh, my God. It just kills me every time. It's fantastic. And he does it a lot. So when he goes and he breaks into Paul Allen's apartment. um, Oh, his voiceover? His voiceover is fantastic because, again, he's so worried about Paul Allen's apartment being better than his. That's Mm -hmm. it. He's not worried about getting caught. He's not worried about what he had just done. Yeah, like, you know, the, the view was... He's terrified that Paul Allen's apartment is better than his. Mm-hmm. The, I'm assuming then the bathroom turned it off because he said, until I got to the bathroom. Yeah, and he was... Uh, he was... I, I don't remember the exact line, but he, he was terrified of something. He goes, and then a sigh of rel- and then a wave of relief watches over me when I realize it's not... Or whatever, right? Yeah. It, it's... And he does that quite a bit throughout the film, this voiceover of this really strange competition he has with himself and everybody else. You know, and it's him versus everyone else in terms of material possessions. And then speaking of, you know, business cards, you know, decides he's going to kill Lewis because Lewis's business card is. He has a great, you know, he has a great business card. Yeah. Gold lettering. Oh. And again, it's this, you know, status. Mm-hmm. Status matters so much to these guys. And the sound design in that scene is amazing with the, you know, the the unsheathing of the oh, business yeah. card out of the metal case. And <laughs> they used a lot of, you know, like literal unsheathing swords and stuff like that. Yeah. For the sound design. And I just love that we get these close-up of these cards. That are the same. Impressive. Let's see Paul Allen. Let's see Paul Allen. <laughs> um, I thought about titling the episode. Let's see Paul Allen. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Uh, if you want us to name the, the episode that, uh, leave a comment. Yeah, of leave course, a comment. the episode will already be posted. Leave a comment, you jags. We'll fix it. Um, Let's see Paul Allen's card. Yeah, the, 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 the double point with his hands clasped. What's Paul Allen's card? It, it's it's so iconic in this in this in this film with the. You know, oh, and, and and I love how like all these dudes already know like his cards because Justin Thoreau's like carefully it's like unbelievable the the acting choices and the slow motion and you know everyone is like holding their breath and and looking so worried concerned uh, that Paul Allen's card is going to be better than theirs. <laughs> Look at that subtle love white coloring. Oh my god. Oh my god. It's a watermark. It's a watermark. You know, <laughs> unbelievable, right? You know, and you know, and, and we, you, we were kind of talking about tone, and the film does shift between comedy and very serious drama very quickly, and almost at a dime. Mm-hmm. You know, like when he kills Paul Allen, it's very funny. It's very this comedic. film is very funny. Uh, I would say I, it's I a do dark find comedy. it funny, right? Um, but then you know, like when. Uh, towards the end of the film when he's talking about Whitney Houston mm-hmm. with because he brings Christy back and Elizabeth you know it's very it's not like it's serious but not in the serious of like 
like we know these chicks are about to die, mm. but it's very like Solon serious. Like he's like, you know, Whitney Houston, and and he's just like going into this huge monologue. If if Patrick Bateman cared about anything other than material possessions, it would be music. Yeah. Right. Because again, we get these gigantic monologues of just how much he loves this generic pop music. It's not even like it's, you know, this isn't like indie shit. This isn't uh, opera. This isn't classical music. This is generic new pop music. Yeah, man, this is this is Hugh Lewis in the news. Yeah. This is Phil Collins. Yeah. And he even brings up Genesis at one point, too. Right. Um, I did see a meme. This is an aside about Genesis. Uh, I saw a meme... That said, why is Peter Gabriel the evil Phil Collins? <laughs> because they, they showed a side by side picture and they look similar, but Peter Gabriel looks so much, so much more evil. <laughs> uh, it's so funny. Anyway, um, I always love the How I Met Your Mother thing of Barney, like, like getting Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel to bury the hatchet so we can reunite Genesis. Yeah, um, if you guys don't know the story uh, of Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins and Genesis, Google it. It's great. Google um, it. Google it. Phil, Col- I'm a Phil Collins guy myself, so I, I, I like I Phil Collins Genesis. I think, I think unlike Simon and Garfunkel, both men work better as solo artists. Mm-hmm. As were, you know, what was Simon without Garfunkel? Wildly successful. Wildly successful. <laughs> I love Paul Simon and Simon Garfunkel. Um, uh, Paul right. Simon is the fucking man. Okay, so now that we've gotten through all of that, let's let's, let's talk, talk about the a- ending. Yeah, let's talk about the ending. So let's talk about this sort of murder spree melee that mm-hmm. uh, we get at the end. That's very over the top and very surreal because uh, we actually get some really generic action movie stunts and explosions in this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, it, again, it starts off with feeding the cat to the ATM. But I asked Ashley, I was like, what would you do if we went to the ATM and you saw that pop up? She was like, I'd get the fuck out of there. No, I think I... You'd be like, okay, where is one? Uh, I need my money. Where's the... Yeah. uh, If if you haven't seen it, again, listen to what Jeremy said at the beginning. Watch the movie first, then come back. Uh, But the ATM pops up with a message. Feed me a stray cat. Yeah. And and there just happens to be a stray cat. And he's Uh, like, okay. Again... Now we're starting off very surreal. This is very dreamlike. Mm-hmm. Uh, this whole sequence, because then he kills. He kills a lady who. That's right. Witnesses him doing it. She's like, "What are you doing?" And he just pops pulls her. out a gun out of nowhere and and shoots this lady. Then the cops show up. He gets in a shootout with the cops. He shoots the car. The car explodes. Well, and I love that he even recognizes like it's strange. Right? Like he looks at the gun and is like. Exactly. And that's sort of where we get this this break in... Almost reality. Right. Because now, um, before, it seems strange, but Patrick's along for the ride. Right. This time, it's strange, and he's no longer along for the ride. Now, he's noticing it's strange. You know, and then he accidentally goes into the wrong building, <laughs> which another aspect of pointing out that everything looks the yes. same to these guys. He goes into a building... Shoots the security guard who calls him Mr. Smith. Mm-hmm. Kills the janitor, runs out of the building and goes across the street, or not even across the street, across the, like, um... Like a courtyard or courtyard something. Courtyard. Like to his building, which looks exactly the same. Exactly the same, yeah. Yeah, and then... And then we get 
the the phone call. Yeah, his uh, confession. His confession to, and this is what's really cool and really interesting that Mary Heron and the other. I'm so sorry, I don't remember the other woman's name. If you can I, look at that, that I got be you, great. dog. Keep talking. And um, what they do to make up for the Guinevere Turner. Thank you. Um, so with Heron and Turner, what they did uh, was we had to leave out a lot of stuff, right, from the book. Here's where we can put it in. In, in verbal exposition. So when... Which works. You know, it most, does work. Most exposition doesn't work, but right, this works. I, I don't like it. But this time I really did because he's confessing to all these things that we didn't get to see on screen, mm-hmm. but they happen in the book. And so when he's talking about, you know... He's killed at least 10, 15 homeless people. Right. Killing this woman and this other... And we're like, what is he talking about? He didn't do any of that. Sorry. But he did, right? In mm-hmm. the book, right? And so... Um, and so we get this very long confession and he's very sweaty he's very sweaty and you know he is very animated but very worried Mm -hmm. right very concerned for his own which is very strange for him because he's usually been calm and cool this whole movie right cool as ice this guy isn't phased by anything but this is really shaking him right yeah and and he's hopping back and forth between verbally sobbing to almost hysterical laughter. Right. And this, I mean, again, Christian Bale's amazing and oh, yeah. it really works. And then we get to the next day. And this is where things start to fall apart. Narrative. I mean, for us, the audience. Yeah, because we're... Things start to not make sense anymore. Because we're like, wait, 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 what? Right. So, going back to Paul Allen's apartment... Which, where he murdered that woman with the chainsaw. Yes. Which, why, I don't, to this day, I've still never understood why go back. And we we glossed over that scene, and I apologize, but, you know, when she is being chased by Patrick Bateman, she's going in and out of these rooms that are terrifying looking, right? Yeah. They're, they're traditional horror film tropes. It's almost like they're in the house from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, Which it, is funny because he's watching it at one point. Right. Exactly. And so, um, and which is where he learns how to use the chainsaw, by the way. But um, he's, she's weaving in and out of these rooms that are, you know, out of a saw film. And, you know, then she runs down the stairs. He drops the, the, chainsaw. the chainsaw. And in perfect synchronicity, yeah. hits her at the end of the stairs and kills her. Right? Yeah. So now he goes back to the apartment. The very next day, so he can... Presumably, get rid of the bodies. Right. Clean up, get out of there, right? So he's got a mask on, which now, of course, I've, I've gotten aware it doesn't look weird anymore. But it's it would have been sort of out of place, obviously, <laughs> then. And the apartment is completely empty and is being shown by a realtor. And is repainted. Oh, and- I mean, with plastic... Mm-hmm. Uh, over some of the stuff to where you wouldn't get paint on. There's drop cloth. There's, right? It's it's being renovated almost. And Patrick kind of, he stops for a second. He's kind of like, wait a minute. Are we in the right place? And the layout suggests, yes, we are in the correct place. This is Paul Allen's apartment. And so he goes to the closet where he's been hanging bodies like suits. Mm-hmm. And they're gone. They're gone. They're not there. Well, what the hell happened? Did someone come in and clean up that's so odd and then he's 
then we get this very awkward exchange between him and the the real estate agent. And, and she says that this is never... Paul Allen doesn't live here anymore. Right. Um, and now he's confused. Well, he's confused. I'm confused. The audience is confused. Yeah. What the hell's going on? Then he goes to... It's a restaurant. Right? Harry's Bar, I think. And Which we've been before, I think. And we... We see his lawyer. The one he confessed to. Right. And again, mistaken identity. He calls him Davis. Right. And he goes, no, it's Patrick Bateman. I'm Patrick. Because he, he thinks it's a joke. Right. He's like, Davis, ah, oh, that was so funny. Like, because he even says, like, oh, if you would have said Bryce or whatever right. Josh but Lucas said, is. But you said Bateman. That guy's a lunatic. But yeah, that guy's such a, like, such a dork. And he's yeah. like... No, I'm Patrick Bale, right? And now he finally corrects somebody, and you know now we get a break in that also because he's never corrected anybody before. Mm, he's and now just he's it. just so over it. I'm Patrick Bateman, and so then they're like, "I killed Paul Allen." He goes, "No, you didn't." And he's like, "That's not possible. That's not possible. I just saw him in London ten days ago." Right, and so now Patrick's like, "What the fuck?" And now we, the audience, like, "What the fuck? What's going on?" What happened? Did nothing happen? Mm-hmm. And and we finally get real Patrick Bateman just for a split second when they're watching Ronald Reagan address what's going on in Kuwait. Mm-hmm. Right? Kuwait? No. It I, wouldn't have been Kuwait. No, that's Oh, right. it would have been Iraq. I think so. Anyway. And it was probably him and Oliver North. It was probably that Oliver North thing and whatever. Go ahead. Anyway. And Bryce is like, what do you think, Patrick? And he just goes, Whatever. Because he's finally, he's he's kind of given up on, I'm not going to one-up you. I'm not going to fit in. Not today. Not right now. Yeah. Because now I'm racking my brain to find out what the hell is going on. And then we get this monologue, which is great. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's sort of, if, if you're really listening and you're, you know, you're hanging on his every word, he's almost saying... I didn't do any of that stuff, right? I must, you know, I must be just a sociopath or psychopath up here right? in my head. I didn't do those things in the physical world. This is not true. Um, this is not an exit. So... Well, and, and, I, and I love the two lines he says, there is no catharsis. This confession has meant nothing. Right. Boom. Moving Ending on. over. <laughs> All right. So... What happened, right? This is where we get this this movie turns into a mind fuck, which again I don't say derogatorily or to gratuitously. I I warned Ashley. I was right right after he made that phone call. I was like, get ready for a mind fuck. Yeah, get ready for it because it's it's gonna mess with you because you're now you're unsure of anything you just saw. Yeah. Did did the whole movie happen in Patrick's head? Did it really happen? Uh, who knows? All right. So I did some reading. Did some, some reading? Some, yeah. Did you need help with the big words? Yeah, I did. So, all right. Oh, it's Hal, Halberstram, by the Halberstram. way. Halberstram. Halberstram. Oh, okay. I had it right in front of me this entire time. I didn't read it. <laughs> oh, sorry, everyone. It's Halberstram. Is the, anyway. So that's who Paul Allen thought Patrick Bateman was. Right. So there are traditionally two explanations okay. for the ending of the film. I think I know one of them. Patrick killed all the women mm-hmm. that we see him kill, 
and the lawyer at the end simply mistakes uh, Paul Allen for another person, right? Yeah. Like we've said, that might be a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of it did happen, right? And Patrick technically got away with it. He got away with it. Two. Two. Maybe didn't kill anybody. Okay. Right? Um, and it's simply fantasies of stuff that he has drawn in his notebooks and or one scene with the tablecloth and the and oh and his and his uh his date book right um and so when he says this uh this confession has meant nothing it just meant that it, nothing happened right which is where i tend to go i tend to go where nothing actually happened and i get i have a really good example of why i think that okay and it's and it's because um, Sean. Uh, Sean Bateman is Patrick's brother mm-hmm. uh, in Rules of Attraction, which is another Brady Sinellis, uh book, which is an amazing film. Definitely a future episode. episode. Uh, it'll blow your mind. It's unbelievable, this movie. Um, but in this one, uh, again, Patrick is in the book. Uh, but he's not in the movie. He's mentioned in the movie. Yeah, um, I, yeah, yeah. I think that, that. Yeah, Sean has a phone call downstairs, and he picks it up, and the guy over the phone says, "Hey, Sean, is that you?" He goes, "Patrick, is this Patrick? What are you doing?" Well, and, you and, know? and I know they filmed scenes with him for Rules of Attraction, but they cut it for. And it's because they 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 couldn't get um, Christian Christian Bale because he was doing Batman. Or well, and I heard working he, on Batman, or he was. Uh, building his weight back up from um, the machinist because this is in between that time yeah well I, I thought I read something that he might have he just didn't want to or something I right he didn't want to be typecast right I had read that also and so they just didn't add him in but you know that that to me seems like almost proof he didn't do anything because you know his brother would have known or you know you know you could argue that he would think that it's weird Patrick's calling right because I haven't heard from him in years or it's weird Patrick's calling because maybe he's calling from jail or it's weird Patrick or whatever right right but I like to think that none of this ever happened Patrick's just a weird guy um, who happens to have a also weird brother um, so I kind of okay. So I would like to offer you a third one, a third explanation. Sure. Because I I go back and forth on both of those. That he did do it, mm-hmm. that his lawyer is just mistaking him for someone else. Um, but I'm going to offer up a third one, and it's kind of a variation of the first one. So he did do it, but the realtor would rather get rid of the bodies so she could resell an apartment. That's interesting. That's a, that's a really, uh, which would fit with the narrative because that's a really over the top you know, scenario of someone um, ignoring moral issues to make money. Mm-hmm. Right? And Which is very 1980s. And the lawyer, I think he knows it's Patrick, but kind of is like... I don't want to deal with that. Yeah. And so you're Davis. I saw Paul Allen. I like that. That's not um, bad. I, I I like the sound of that. Um, 
I don't know. To me, I I always gravitate towards um, mentally unstable um, and sort of, um, you know, um, ambiguous and this sort of unreliable narration. Well, I do. I also love unreliable narrators. I think I think it makes for great storytelling. For future episode, uh, the Joker, uh, Todd Phillips, you know, he always says that you know, do we even trust he is the Joker, or is this just some guy in a mental institution telling a story, right? And, and, so fucking good, bro. And and so it, it's sort of like that to where mm-hmm. you know it, it's fun to think about it either way. Yeah, um, especially or in between. Especially when we kind of we kind of skipped over this scene, but there's a scene that really shows Patrick is capable of control, and it's when he invites Chloe Sevigny yeah. over. Yes, and the he's nail gun. One hundred percent going to kill her. Yeah, until Evelyn calls. Everyone is. Everyone in the audience is like, "Oh man, I really liked her." You know, yeah, <laughs> and it's like it's she's kind a of goner. like the horror trope of you don't kill the final girl mm-hmm. because you know. This whole time, Chloe has been, like, the most honest-to-goodness good person. Yeah, wholesome, innocent sort of woman, and, right? and here we go. He's going to kill her. And then Evelyn calls, and she immediately feels guilty. Like, oh, here I am getting myself wrapped up with a, you know, a, a taken man. Right. Do you want me to go? And he says, I think you should, because if you don't go, I think something bad will happen. Now... That's also it's also a, a comical scene because the nail gun yeah. is so and he's outrageous. Got it, and he's got it right behind her head. Right. It's 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 such an outrageous image of someone holding a nail gun like a pistol to the back of her head. Mm. And of course, this is just me it's sort of, you know, uh, being a realist is it wouldn't have worked anyway because it needs to be up against her head to work, right? Yeah, um, and which he would have felt and been like, "What the fuck?" Right. Um, but just the image of him just holding it behind yeah. her head is just so funny to me. But, but yeah, you know, I think that was just showcasing that he is capable of control. Because um, then the final thing I really wanted to talk about was, you know, there's a lot of other theories about the what the movie is, and one of the first ones I ever read was it that that. He is this person named Davis. Mm-hmm. That Patrick Bateman actually is someone else, um, and that this guy, the whole movie has been thinking that he's Patrick Bateman. And for a while, That's I believed that. For That's while, interesting. I really like that. For a while, I was like, that makes so much sense. He's sort of escaping into another personality with this really strange, dorky guy at his office, Patrick Bateman. What is it like to be Patrick Bateman? Mm-hmm. Right? Stepping into those shoes. That's interesting. That's an interesting idea. I, I thought of that, but then I was like, but there's too much evidence pointing to that he really is, he is Patrick. Patrick. You know, his, yeah. his cards, everyone knows him as Patrick Bateman. Because mm-hmm. if he really is this Davis guy, I feel like they would... There wouldn't be a lot of mistaken identity, maybe. Right. Um, but I, I believe that 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 Christian does play Patrick. That Patrick is the person we see the whole movie, right. um, and that he. I I do also truly believe that he did kill these women. But mm. there also is a part of me that agrees with you. That's all just a fantasy, right? That he he mentally did all these horrible things, mm. and that his mind has become unstable, right? And he can't discern reality from fantasy. 
Um, another difference in the in the movie that's in the book is his apartment where we open the in the book and it's very pristine and clean and um, you know almost sterile, right? Yeah. But after a while, um, he it's covered with body parts and blood and tools and stuff because he just doesn't put it away, right? It's Maybe. all there still. Maybe that's why they wanted to do that for Paul Allen's apartment. Yeah, and that's what his apartment would kind of look like in the book, is Paul Allen's apartment. Right. Yeah, which I thought was really interesting also. Yeah. Um, That it just... I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Voices uh, with uh, Ryan Reynolds. It's great. Oh, oh, the Voices? It's great. I wanted to, and then... Shout out to my dad. He really loves that movie. My dad also, also saw it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, he was it's a good dad like, movie. <laughs> he was like, he was like, I mean, he was like, it was all right. He was like, I think maybe you might like it. And I was like, well, I don't know. Um, so, Jeremy, are you ready to wrap up, wrap up, wrap up? Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. Um, this is a this is a great film. It's it's a good study in narrative ambiguity. Um, and sort of, you know, and not so much narrative ambiguity until the last mm-hmm. 20 minutes. Yeah. Or not even, yeah, right? Cause, yeah, because the whole time we think we know the story. Right. It's that real pulling the rug out from under you at the very last minute. Because then we're just like, what? And it's not enough time to grasp, mm-hmm. which is brilliant. Because if they gave us enough time, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Exactly. We'd be like, oh, yeah, no, this actually happened. Right. It, it the, the fact that it doesn't give you but 10 minutes to be like, wait, 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 what's going on? Then it's sort of, and then it ends. Then you're yeah. like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Right? Yeah, I told Ashley it's a, it's a great, you know, fuck you to the audience. Pretty much. Um... And, I mean, shout out to Brady Stanellis. It's fantastic. Um, If you're a fan of his and don't want to read and just want to watch his movies, don't watch Less Than Zero. That's not a good... He hates that one. Uh, Only because, like Rules of Attraction, it's a bunch of people and a bunch of their individual storylines... And less than zero is that as well in the book. It's like seven storylines, but uh-huh. the movie's one. Uh-huh. It focuses on one storyline, and that's not a. Oh, I'm. I meant to mention this because I really wanted to see your reaction, but I completely forgot till now. Um, did you know that there was a Broadway musical of American Psycho? <laughs> um. I do now that you've mentioned it I I think I at one point was aware of that so the reason why I bring this up because I look for any reason to shoehorn this in um, my boy Matt Smith the 11th Doctor Who played Patrick Bateman in the musical and then in 2016 when I guess it made it to Broadway uh, Benjamin Walker who played Abraham Lincoln in Mm. Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter uh, took over the role. How interesting. Yeah. A, a, an American Psycho musical. musical. It's called American Psycho the Musical. Yikes. Uh, I don't think I'd like that. I think I found the soundtrack at one point and listened to a couple tracks, and I was just like, ugh. And I saw some, I saw some set photos, and, and, and they recreated the movie really well. Yeah. Um, 
But I was just like, I don't know. Uh, yikes. Yeah, that's really strange. But that gives, I mean, that gives you an idea of the impact of this narrative. Yeah. That someone loved it so much that they're just like, I want to, I want to build upon it. I want to keep it alive. I want to, you know, mm-hmm. share this with other people, but my way, and that way is musicals. Yeah. When I, when I bought it on iTunes, they played like a trailer because it, I guess, you know, it was, it was remastered 4K, as mm-hmm. you know, and it was saying how like it's, you know, it's the film that like defined a decade. And I was like... I mean, maybe not that, but it's a damn good film. It does do a very good job at defining the 1980s. Right? Absolutely. Or at least in a in a very stereotypical um, and a very negative light, right? Yeah. It's not... It's not praising the 1980s. No, it's, it's picking the awful parts of the 1980s. And ramping that shit. Right, exactly. And so I do think it does define the problems of the 1980s very well, and maybe that's what they meant. If they had meant the early 2000s, nah, I wouldn't say that. But Yeah, I was like, eh, I, I, would, of- I would say that it does do that in its, the literal narrative setting, very well. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jeremy. Yeah. What are we talking about next week? So, I'm really glad you asked me that. Um, you wouldn't have... <laughs> Uh, it is my turn next week, and so we're going to stick with very strange films, and we're going to talk about David Lynch's 2001's um, Mulholland Drive. Uh, ah. Mulholland Drive. Uh, I've said this before, not on the podcast, but uh, besides Twin Peaks The Return, which is uh, his return of Twin, Twin Peaks, Peaks. right? Uh, in 2017 Mm -hmm. Um, this is his masterpiece this is pure Lynch but in a digestible fashion fashion because otherwise I would say Eraserhead is but Eraserhead is less digestible for a a mainstream audience this one is people that love David Lynch love it and people that don't love it Right? This is one of those films that and defines this one, him, his career. And this one, he won an Academy Award for, correct? That I don't know. Um, I know, so I did, as, as I told you the other night, I did a little reading. Nothing about the story, nothing about anything. I just wanted to know just a little, just a little bit of nuggets. And I did learn that it was originally filmed as a pilot, mm-hmm. like a 45-minute yeah, pilot. Yeah, it was going to be his next series um, after Twin Peaks. And apparently whatever network he took it to was like, nah, fam. They're like, I don't think so. Which is a shame because um, he never wanted to work with television after that and didn't until Showtime said, you can do whatever you want. And he was like, bet. Yeah. And he goes, oh, okay. And then he did Twin Peaks of Return. And again, letting letting David Lynch do what he wants Always comes out good. Yes, because he, he understands... That people not only, I mean, yes, I'm going to make it my own, but people also need to understand what's going on mm-hmm. at, at, at some level. Right. And so, and people who love him and have grown up with his, his style, there's going to be an audience for it, no matter what. No matter if they can understand it or not, you know? Mm-hmm. And so with Mulholland Drive, them them sort of not green lighting the show sort of helps because then he got to finish it the way he wanted to right and I mean he obviously um, had to kind of rush 
sort of yeah um, get a rough cut of the film out to where he can then hammer out the dents but it's wonderful yeah well uh, we hope everyone enjoyed this week of American Psycho um, if you ignore Jeremy's uh, spoiler warning well way to go we just, way to go we just ruined the whole movie for you <laughs> uh, and we will see you guys next week for Mulholland Drive Back in time.